This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. I'm Meenakshi from Stories of Win, and I'm thrilled to be here today with Dr. Jyoti Mishra, who's an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UC San Diego. Thank you so much for doing the interview with us. Thank you, Meenakshi. It's my pleasure to be here. So to kick things off, we generally like to start asking about your neuroscience origin story. How and when did you first become interested in studying the brain? So I grew up in India, and uh, my father uh, is actually a, a neuroradiologist. And so he looked at a lot of brain images, and he's a clinician. And the way um, things are in India, we also uh, lived on a hospital campus, and we had uh, my father's patients, once they had recovered, come visit us at home and tell us stories about their uh, you know, recovery. He was also an interventionalist, so he was able to, you know, actually go in and um, intervene on, say, emboli or, you know, arterial strokes and things like that. And so there were patients who would actually have um, really miraculous changes happening in their in their lives from almost going to a non-paralyzed person to, to um, from a paralyzed person, excuse me, to a non-paralyzed person. So, And all these people were part of our lives and came visited us. And I just was, from those conversations, just got very enamored by, um, you know, how is our brain's capacities um, able to do all these things? And um, yeah, I, you know, in India at that time, um, in the 90s, when I had finished school, there wasn't an opportunity to do an undergraduate um, in neurosciences. Um, I then did a master's uh, in um, this place called the National Center of Biological Sciences, where I got to do some computational modeling work in um, neuronal circuits. But what I really figured out at that time from reading papers in the field was that I was most... um, you know, excited by cognitive neuroscience and how um, our thoughts and the way we uh, process cognition is coded in the brain. And that brought me to graduate school in the United States, actually here in at UC San Diego. And um, that's my journey. That's very fascinating. Did you also consider becoming a doctor or did you know you were just more curious about um, studying about the brain? Yeah, you know, in, in your formative years, you don't really know what exactly is your path. And so you can uh, take advice from people. And, um, you know, medical profession I, this was something I did consider for a little bit. I actually went to medical school for one month. And um, when I was in medical school, I found myself only asking why something works as opposed to uh, we just have to do these protocol things because that's what serves the patient best. And um, that curiosity made me realize that I may have a more more fun doing a scientific career than a medical career at that stage. So For sure. Um, and how was your graduate school experience? Um, what, what research topics did you focus on in grad school? Sure. You know, I had... Um, uh, at the UCSD Neurosciences program, I was also part of the computational neuro group cohort. It was a very rigorous program. Actually, all of my col- colleagues and friends in the program were engineers, and I didn't really come from a engineering training. So while they were learning a lot of the biological basis 
studies in in neuroscience and neurobiology, I was kind of also getting up to speed with a lot of engineering concepts and computational concepts and coding. And um, so in terms of coursework, it was a very intense period of time. Um, My mentors were uh, very good at letting me explore exactly the things that I was interested in and gave me that space as opposed to saying, you know, this is a project you should do. Um, And at the same time, they were good at um, guiding me to be productive at a project that I take on. You know, it's not like an exploration ad nauseum. And I think that's partly a good grad school mentor should have that balance that they could really find what the student's passion is and at the same time guide them towards how they can you know, transform that passion into something that'll contribute to the field, um, like a, a, a solid piece of work. Um, and so at, at that time, I got very interested in um, sensory perception, but also multi-sensory perception. So how um, human brains tend to integrate in, in, integrate information from different senses and bring that information together towards solving our decision-making problems. And multi-sensory integration is actually very fascinating because it's one of the most um, uh, developed abilities in the human brain that separates us from uh, apes and primates. And and it's the human model is the best model to really study that. And so I trained on um, perception in the multisensory environment. There's also a phenomenon like multisensory illusions that happen that one sense can influence another sense to see things or hear things depending on the dominance of that sense. And how do we pay attention to multisensory information? And I got to learn a lot of neurophysiological tools and um, computational modeling tools and uh, very grateful for my grad school mentors for um, that, you know, eye-opening experience. I had a really good time. Great. That sounds very, uh, very interesting. Uh, In terms of your career trajectory, were you at the end of graduate school, did you know this was the path and you, you wanted to go down the academic road or were you also considering other options at that point? Yeah, you know, it's uh, um, at the end of grad school, I think it's very typical to have your PhD blues, post-PhD blues, and you're like, I I want nothing to do with science. And um, that happened to me. And, um, you know, I was looking at other careers that are completely... not necessarily associated with science. So we had a, uh, one day I was at an interview for McKinsey Consulting. And um, what I learned from that experience was that, hey, uh, um, I have to be a consultant, but at the same time, I'm not taking much um, scientific knowledge to back up my arguments. I'm taking a lot of opinions and, and that's how, how, I'm, how I'm solidifying a case. And to me that felt, um, well, what I discovered in that path of just even trying to find what I want to do was that I'm actually very scientifically oriented, that I really like uh, approaches that are evidence-based. And if it's um, been shown to be true in the literature and by thorough good research, um, then I like to to, uh, pursue that path but um, other paths are not for me but at the same time I also realized um, 
that I'm not just a, a not a, just is not a good word here, but I did not want to be a basic scientist. I wanted to be someone who can use the knowledge um, that we have from our neuroscience um, applications, from our um, you know how the brain works essentially, and and translate that towards improving mental health. And this is also partly from my upbringing that I had seen a lot of patients' lives change dramatically. So even though I didn't want to be a clinician myself, I really wanted to see how we can use advanced knowledge towards improving lives. Um, And so a lot of my uh, postgraduate training, um, postdoc actually was in that translational methods. And I did, a, I had the opportunity to go, um, to San Francisco and actually do, do a very unique, um, postdoc that I actually put together myself where I was working part-time in industry and part-time in academia. And, uh, that was a really fun experience because I got to work in industry and learn, um, really, you know, ways to work in a very productive, high productivity environment um, that works towards developing tools that the industry will then market over time, but then also research the evidence base for it in a lab setting, um, in an academic setting. And and during that process, there was just... um, well, it was a stressful time to be able to integrate two jobs together, but at the same time, a lot of learnings in uh, clinical translational research. Um, and then eventually, from all of that together, um, when I set up my own lab here, I was... Um, I, I was very content to be in academia, and academia excited me more because I had learned how to develop tools de novo, so do um, coding and software development. And so I was confident this is something I could do in either place in industry or academia. But what differs between the two settings is that is the goal really return of investment in terms of dollars or in terms of intellectual capital. So my goals and my intent or you know you always I think one should try to follow what your inner voice says and my intent was never to see things you know be pushed out into a market while they're still immature if it's a fully developed product and it's something that works really well great but if it's something that's still you know there's a lot about applications and there's we need to pause because there's there's a lot of mysteries in the brain. And then we're taking whatever we know towards an application. So there's lots of science to do there. So there's this whole intellectual journey that can happen in that process. But it's, it's, it's not necessary that the first phase of that will lead to, you know, a, a product that has revenue. And given those values, I was, I, was, I said, well, I want to set up the... Um, a place for myself in academia, not in industry. <laughs> That's very well said. And I think it's a really great advice for, for people like at a crossroad and thinking both, both about industries and academia. And like you said, you had you did a very unique postdoc. So you worked for um, Post-It Science Corporation in SF, and you were also a, a clinical research fellow back in India at Ames, All India Institute of Medical Sciences. Uh, so could you tell us a bit about that experience as well? Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, you really looked up what I've done. Um, Yeah, so I was 
very much interested in being able to apply, um, you know, the basic neuroscience knowledge towards uh, um, improving mental health. And in that process, in, in that entire process, um, one of the ways uh, I wanted that was exciting to me was to bring this knowledge back to the country that I came from. And uh, that was actually a, something that would be feasible because I work with digital tools and digital tools are scalable to different settings. And um, so that was exactly my project to apply some of the tech that I was developing, which was um, uh, to improve attention and cognition and apply that to children with ADHD. And so I partnered with a psychiatrist in India, uh, in my hometown in Delhi and got to spend some time there and, you know, wrote up a Fogarty fellowship application and got to spend some time there doing research that I was, uh, bringing from the U S to India. And it was, it was a, it's a great time. I took my children with me and, uh, they had a great time being with family. Um, but I think that's, you know, you you can leverage the uh, the advantages of some of the kind of research that you do it and see how you can take that towards making things more optimal to all of your, you know, different desires. And that's kind of been a, uh, it's, it's kind of been something that's, um, you know, pushed me forward at every level. It's like, what is missing and what do I want to bring in more into the work that I do? That sounds awesome. It's especially really nice to be able to give back um, in, in whatever little way possible um, to, to the place that we came from and, and back to our roots. Um, and then in 2017, you founded your own lab, uh, the Neural Engineering and Translational Lab at UCSD. So how was it transitioning to leading your own lab? Yeah, I um, spent a long time in uh, postgraduate training. Um, there's, you know, my my spouse was training at the same time, and um, we didn't rush a transition to independence. So by the time I actually set up my lab, it was. Um, very much a time that I felt mature and ready of exactly how I would get things done. Um, another thing, we, it's it's uh, need labs. It's not need lab because we are two um, co-principal investigators, co-directors, me and my spouse. Who we and we um, run need labs in that we share a lot of administrative stuff together. We collaborate on science, and we uh, sometimes have post who do projects across both teams, like what his expertise is and what my expertise is. So I think um, having an environment where you're not going at it alone was very helpful in, um, you know, making Neat Labs what it is today. Great. Um, and what would you describe um, as the, the main scientific goal of the Neat Labs? Sure. So Neat Labs is really a place where we... Um, develop and evaluate new neuroscientific tools and that include um, neurotechnologies, digital technologies that can advance mental health, um, both in terms of assessments and in terms of um, uh, interventions. And Neat Labs has um, a mechanistic focus in that we, while we are developing these tools, we want to um, enhance uh, the understanding of the neurobiology in um, 
in accessible settings. So we really emphasize tool development that can be brought to communities, that can be brought to clinics, that can be brought to low-income settings. Um, and while we do that in humans, we also have a research arm that uh, our co-director uh, and my spouse, Dr. Ramanathan, leads um, that looks at the same type of paradigms applied in animals where we can do more finer and invasive mechanistic, um, uh, you know, investigations. And so it's, um, you know, it's not one person, it's a whole team of people trying to look at things from, you know, single neuron mechanisms all the way to uh, family and community influences. Awesome. So as you mentioned, so your lab does, the NEAT labs uh, do both animal and human research and combining these different models is a dream for many. So um, um, could you just elaborate a little bit more on how you use this combination to address your main scientific goals? Yes, you know, I, I went, again, in my postgraduate training, I had uh, collaborated with other um, researchers who were experts in animal physiology, and uh, I've always been uh, trained in human neurosciences. And in that process, we uh, we had a lot of uh, research, in, um, you know, back and forth in terms of the task designs, in terms of the questions we wanted to ask, and how animal research can really help forward the mechanistic goals, while human Human research can really help to forward the applied goals of, uh, you know, if you're testing a new intervention, like how far does it help with uh, human health or human mental health specifically? So it, whereas in animals, like, well, how does this actually work in terms of affecting sensory processing and prefrontal processing and so on? So, um, we you know, there would be the, all of these researchers at the same table and we do that still things that were part of my training and and um it just so happened that uh, during our postgraduate training process i um was collaborating with different animal researchers and um my spouse dr ramanathan he was he was collaborating with other human researchers and we never formally actually collaborated at that time but we both got trained in cross species methods and um really bringing in all these researchers to the same table and seeing how similar paradigms so say a cognitive paradigm can be applied in both humans and animals and so we've done studies like this where um you know we look at cognitive control paradigms especially things like um uh, decision making or response impulsivity and so we can make a very similar uh, cognitive design both in humans and in animals and then study circuits uh in parallel and um and innovations happen on both sides so for example the animal team they um engineered new ways to do high throughput uh, behavioral uh, studies. So they had, you know, um, like having large sample sizes is important. There's like the, the crisis that things can't be replicated unless they're done in large sample sizes. So they created high throughput uh, behavioral monitoring chambers for their rodents. And at the same time, they also did um, these uh, electrophysiological recordings from multiple brain areas. So like they could they record from 16 um, brain areas in the awake behaving rat, uh, which not many other people do. And this was to emulate the fact that in the human brain, we are constantly monitoring brain function in multiple brain areas. So there are all these like complementary uh, innovations that that 
got about because we wanted to understand both aspects. And I think that's been pretty cool. Awesome. Um, so just reflecting on the last several years as a principal investigator, what would you say has been the most rewarding thing? Um, I love uh, working with others in a team. And um, I come from uh, sort of have this core uh, belief that everyone has a strength in them uh, to you know, if, if you're trained as a researcher, you have that core ability, or even if you have just that curiosity of a researcher, say even if you're an undergrad, you're not a postdoc or a guest, that you have the ability to do good science. Somehow I just believe that in my, in my core. And um, my job is um, to help guide you in that process. And uh a, help find what is exactly your passion as a student uh, at whatever level you come in. And then um, mentor through that process of um, the correct scientific approach. And that involves being a skeptic of your own work. That involves, you know, doing things correctly and replicating and all of that. But then, you know, that whole journey from the beginning where someone just meets you as a novice and is like, hey, I'm interested in the kind of work that you do to, um, you know, we do actual good science together, we, you know, do presentations and, and papers. And um, that's been really fun. Nobody, I know, if I, even if I were to think through all of the mentees that I've had till they, uh, it's unexpected what they'll end up doing you know their individual contributions have been so different and uh, the other thing I'll mention is that Neat Labs is a very integrated place in terms of the kinds of researchers we get we get people from engineering from medical school from um, uh, neurosciences but also psychology and social sciences because we have a community focus um, and at I actually learn a lot more from my team than I am teaching them. And so having sort of that open-mindedness towards what people bring to you, I've really enjoyed that. And that's what keeps me in academia, actually. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's like a lifelong learning process Absolutely. with an amazing team and a, a very diverse set of people that we bring together. But talking uh, on the same lines, talking about mentorship, you have mentored several people, including more than 100 women. Um, is there any advice you give to your mentees, especially women, um, that you would also like to pass on to our listeners today? Uh, I really care about um, giving forth a, a sense of empowerment, um, uh, sort of implicitly, but it's that a lot is possible if you really want to do it. And, and that's not to say that we all have stressors and we all have challenges and, um, and we all have to maintain work-life balance. And we all need to think about that today may not necessarily be the day that you accomplish a lot, but there are ways to figure out how do you you know, actually realize your dreams, um, even if it may not be possible in that current context. So it's um, that sense of empowerment uh, is something 
um, you know, it's something I really enjoy inculcating. And I'm really grateful for a lot of my mentees who've um, stayed in touch with me and throughout their careers, even when they've graduated or gone on to their new positions and um, sort of, you know, continue to interact and let me know how, you know, the things that we did together has influenced their careers going forward. And um, I think the way we do projects together, it's just helps people. Um, it helps me also to kind of just strengthen that belief that we all have that talent if we put in that hard work. And, uh, and I'm here to actually help people's careers um, to the next stage. I'm grateful for the time that people spend with my team. It's like a, it's a blip, right? It's like a few years before meeting Neat Labs, they were somewhere else. And then after Neat Labs, they'll go somewhere else. So how can we make the most of the time that we have together so that it's a, a good experience and, and, and they, they are successful afterwards? So, um, yeah, I've really enjoyed mentoring people and especially, um, you know, I've had a lot of, uh, like you said, women mentees and, um, yeah, really grateful for that experience. Awesome. This is also a good bridge to our next uh, kind of an important topic that we really like to um, touch upon, which is um, there are a lot of hurdles and challenges along the way in, you know, um, in an academic career path for almost everyone. So something our listeners really like to know about is what are some of the most challenging um, instances during your career for you and how did you bounce back? How did you overcome that? Uh, sure. I think um, I I really uh, develop a lot of um, attachments to um you know, where I live and the community that I am integrated with and the friends that I make. And uh, why I'm mentioning that is that academia, in some sense, is a nomadic career. It makes you move a lot of places. Um, I have, you know, I had a passion for neuroscience that brought me to this country as a grad student. But the first year was very stressful trying to you know, sort of adapt to a new culture completely. Um, you know, people spoke too fast for me. And for me, that was also very hard to kind of, uh, like, what exactly is that person saying? You know, so just, um, so there have been like, depending on the stage, I think at every point in life that there has been a transition, academia will make you have a lot of transitions, especially if you want to grow and learn and not stagnate in the positions that you're in and the roles that you're playing. Then you kind of have to embrace those transitions. And um, I think over time, um, being aware of the fact that, you know, the communities that you cherish and the friendships that you cherish will are, are limited to a certain period of time. And then after that, you'll, you know, not be in physical contact. Okay, you can, you know, be in touch with your friends by, you know, online chats and what whatnot. But it's not the same as living at the same place. But um, just embracing those transitions is very important. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that's always been challenging. Um you know, I think initially it was challenging. Also, you need, when we think about um, work-life issues, we think about, um, you know, oh, when is a good time to have have children? And how do you uh, fit that into an academic career? And, um, 
uh, the answer to that is uh, when you really feel the maternal instinct have their children. But um, the there's never a good time to do other things. But you know you're always constantly figuring out how to make it so that your present day is going to be how you want it to go. You know, so um, yeah, I think uh, being aware of the challenges of transitions uh, is what's helped me over time to grow. Um, but overall, that can be the most stressful period. Thanks so much for sharing that. That's very beautifully, you, you put that in a really beautiful way, because like you said, it's a very, academia is a pretty nomadic career. And, and um, for a lot of people, it's just a luxury to be able to do that, to have the support that, that enables um, us to be able to move and, and continue and not be stagnated in a position. Um, and um, how did you manage, uh, like, starting your family and having children? And, and um, was that um, was that something um, for, like you said, life also has to happen and there's kind of never a good time. Um, but uh, was that a challenge in any way or was that just, like you said, was that just a transition that you felt you really, at, at that point, it just made sense um, to do it and then you embraced it and, and um, it went on? Yeah, you know, um, the two things that come to mind um to meet those challenges are, are one, that nothing can be accomplished alone. You are who you are because of the support network and the community that you have. So, you know, at the times when, um, the two times I have two children, that I really wanted to have a child. I had a supportive spouse. I had a supportive other family members who came and helped out when the children were young. Um, I had access to uh, childcare facilities um, that were costly, but we figured out how to make ends meet and live in smaller housing so that childcare is taken care of. And so you're making all these decisions constantly. Um, and at the same time, you know, there's that support network, either through your work, you have access to childcare, or um, your family can help you out. Or, you know, you have friends who understand um, that you have this hectic academic career that also requires family. So that your friendship network understands that, that even if you meet once in six months, we still have a strong bond of friendship. So all of those things matter. I think um, the other thing for me, um, you know, like I mentioned, transitions have been hard. So when I came to graduate school and I was feeling very stressed and also uh, got clinically depressed for a short period of time, um, I found um, meditation and breathing practices. And um, they've always been a constant in my life. And, and not to say that I'm a, um, someone who meditates every day. I don't. But um, it's the awareness of the breath is such um, a constant presence in my life that um, what that brings you to realize is that what that what matters is just the present moment and around the present moment is today and what can I do to make this moment better and I have a sense of control in that moment I do not have a sense of control of what may happen in a few months where I might be in a few years I don't, but the present moment is, is, you know, something that I can shape. And that sense came from an evolving breath practice that has helped me to, you know, just take the challenges of work and then managing parenthood 
um, on a day-to-day basis, you know? So it's the, it's the same thing that you're, when I'm going to be at work, I will do that with full focus. And when I'm going to be with my children, I will do that with full focus. And there's no, um, you know, other side distracting you. So the, there's a quality of life that you can build around that. And I think um, that doesn't just go through work-life issues. There's also, um, if we can talk about it, but there's, I've had um, challenges in mentorship as well from my mentors who uh, were not supportive of the way I wanted to grow. They, they had other visions of my path. So from that, those experiences, um, I, I, you know, that those shape, so good mentoring and bad mentoring both shape your own experiences. And um, it, 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 I realized that I, I did not want to be a mentor who tells a mentee what they should do in their career. They can figure it out on their own. I can provide guidance and information. And uh, so that was one. But when I did not have supportive mentors at that point in time, um, I realized that I can uh, develop a support network of uh, professionals, uh, peers um, in in academia, um, especially women who have uh, seen how my career has grown and understand the challenges and also see the potential of my future work. And um, what I did was grow this network in a way that... Um, that network then supported me through further career stages, even if my immediate mentor couldn't. So, um, so to summarize, it's like a, it takes a village, both from a personal family side, community side, but also your professional network. And uh, I think the um, key awareness of the present moment and being mindful of that is is very important. I absolutely love um, these pieces of advice because I think this, is, this will benefit most of our listeners because it's this, these problems are so much more common than we think it is we a lot of times we are in an environment where we feel this the mentorship that we get is probably like not the best fit for us or and we might it might feel very lonely in those moments and we might think the problem is is with us but like you're saying it's it's so much more um prevalent than we think it is and it's, it's just about building like a bigger support network um and um beyond just the immediate uh, mentor we have and, and the value of that is a lot Absolutely. And, and and also it was um it was really beautiful uh, to hear you say about how you really try to be in the present and 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 control what you can instead of like and take it one step at a time yeah. i really love those advices um okay so you also recently wrote a children's book called The Little Brain. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? And was that something that you were always passionate about and wanted to do? Um, sure, I can tell you about The Little Brain. It's a, it's a book about um, growing and learning and dreaming big. And um, and it's a, it's a journey of a child and he wants to be many things. And um, in his path of like how do I do all these different things he meets a brain scientist and he and then they have these conversations through different um phases in life and through that I kind of um I introduce a lot of neuroscientific and psychological concepts that uh promote um learning through life and um 
well, how that came about was uh, part of my parenting journey with my uh, older son. And when he was little, these were things we, you know, sort of discussed um, the concepts around learning um, implicitly as part of his learning process, always being encouraging and exploratory and discovery oriented. And, um, you know, those were things that were very important to me. And um, and then I, I, I wrote it and got some feedback on it, uh, and, and then found a really wonderful friend in Indonesia who did the watercolor art. And, um, eventually when the whole project came together, uh, just also to honor the artwork that my friend Grace did on it, um, I said, I have to publish this because this has to get out into the world. She, you know, the, the artwork in, in the book is really beautiful. She spent uh one on every page she spent a month and then she would um you know transform something that she drew on a physical paper and a big canvas to a digital screen and this is very elaborate process so i would say in some senses my writing process was more intuitive and easier than than what she put into the illustrations and um yeah i'm very happy that it came out last year and uh it has had a really um amazing response and everybody's really liked the book so i'm really happy about that great what did your son think of the book <laughs> Oh, he likes it too. He, he likes sure. it too. He's uh, uh, he's kind of knows those concepts from the beginning. So he's like, yeah, I this is this is my journey, and he knows that. And we together sometimes go to book signing events. We just had one, and and he and my daughter will come along, and they'll tell everyone some brain facts. So we kind of do a brain awareness campaign together. It's a nice excuse with That's the book. That's so cute. <laughs> Finally, we would like to end on a fun note and get to know a little bit about you outside the lab. What are some of your other favorite activities that, that just keeps you happy and refreshed when you come back to lab? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I love dancing. Um, I, you know, do um, Western dance and, and workouts. And, and that's like a combined thing that I do. And I do that on a daily basis because that keeps me uh, happy and healthy. And um, I think there's... Um, you know, dance has ways to kind of just take you to this other world. Um, I also play sitar with my son. So we both learn together and that's been a great journey. And I'm very, um, actually very just grateful and very um, lucky to have that journey where we both get to learn together and and now he's like getting better than me so he's always challenging me to like keep up with the pace that he has and um I love that and um yeah just spending time also you know my daughter's still five so uh, we do activities together like we do art together and our, our sometimes our art activities are also a way of her telling me the interpretations and the dreams she has and the what's happening at school and so her conversations are through art many times and um yeah that's, those are the fun things that's, that's really cute and beautiful that you can that you know again the learning never stops and we can learn new things along with our kids absolutely <laughs> that's great thank you so much Jyoti for your time it's been such a pleasure capturing your very inspiring story thank you thank you Manakshi it's a pleasure talking to you